you're in a community where you rely on, you know, weather and, and livestock for your, your sustenance, you know, and, and if things go wrong with that, then you might look for someone to blame or to think that, you know, a witch caused it or something like that. So I think a lot of the um, fear too of folk, folk wars, just fear of other people. What are they going to think of me? What are they going to do to me? How are they going to interpret it? And it's just lots of times based, I think, on, you know, like some misunderstandings too, or misattributions to things that are happening. And then that got me thinking about the cult of Dionysus, but the belief system that if you didn't have a good, like a harvest, you they would sacrifice people because they believed the blood of the sacrifice would go into the earth and Dionysus would be pleased and they'd have a better harvest. But it is so sad when you think about the outcome of such hysteria results in the death of somebody. Yeah, I know, it, it really is sad. I mean, it's tragic. It's- Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. is a subgenre of horror fiction that uses elements of folklore to invoke fear and foreboding. Author Casey Rayburn joins the podcast to talk about the elements commonly found in folk horror, like isolated settings, superstitions, and natural forces. However, once we get to the root of the genre, we realized maybe the scariest part of folklore isn't the demon in the woods. Maybe it's us. So Casey Rayburn, I'm so glad to have you part of this podcast. Can you please tell me and our listeners about yourself and some of your latest projects? Absolutely. I'm really glad to be here, Vicki. I've been ridiculously excited to talk on the Speculative Sandbox about folk horror, our topic um, for our discussion. I am actually going to be debuting Sing Our Bones Eternal in March, at the end of March on the 29th, which is International Mermaid Day. And I chose that because a couple of the main characters are mermaids in my book. And the book, if I had to describe it, it's like the love child between folklore and Gothic fantasy. Mm. So that that's going to be debuting in March and I'm super excited about it. I just put finishing touches on arcs and we'll be sending those out soon. And it's, uh, it's been, it's been an amazing journey and I'm excited to see how people receive it and how people take it because folklore is kind of a strange genre that, Uh, produces a lot of reactions (laughs) and people understandably so. So that's been my main project for the past two years. Um, And and I'll be looking at book number two in the summer, but I'm taking a little, a little breather and a little rest to enjoy the launch and just kind of recover from the past two years of writing the debut. Yeah. It's writing is an intense process, especially when you now have to work on the marketing and just getting it all out there. It's nice to take that rest. Absolutely. So I have planned some rapid fire warmups for my guests this year. I have about six. Three of them are completely unrelated to the topic and three kind of start to touch on the topic. So uh, you ready to get started? Sure. Okay. First random question. What was your last impulse buy? Oh, well, with the holidays and having been not that long ago, um, usually I'm not an impulse buyer, but I will admit during the holiday season, 
Uh, if I see something that I think is perfect for a friend or a family member, I will just kind of buy it without giving it much thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I bought a funny, uh, it was, I think it was like a Ryan Gosling uh, journal, like my dream boyfriend, oh. something along those lines. My sister loves Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling journal? Going- I didn't know those existed. Was it like a <laughs> an official one or was it like a fan-made one? You know, I'm not sure. Um, I don't know whether it was fan-made or official. I think it was probably fan-made, but I'm not sure about that. I just happened to see it and it had his picture on it and it had like some funny little um, sayings that he might say um, to her. And she was actually going through a rough time at the time that I gave it to her. So that was probably the last impulse buy that I just was like, you know what, I'm going to get that for her. (laughs) Nice. That's really thoughtful of you. Well, thank you. I was trying to cheer her up and I thought, well, I've, I've done a lot of the serious talking with her. So let's try to do something, maybe make her smile or make her laugh. Yeah, that's really nice. My last impulse buy was I, I got, I have little phases of hobbies and interests that may or may not, you know, stick. And my last one was embroidery and I ordered a bunch of patterns and then never touched them. <laughs> maybe I will. I don't know. <laughs> Okay. If you ever feel, if you ever feel the desire to dip into it, they're there. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. So if I get burnt out with my current project, I'll be like, oh, embroidery and I'll be set. That's a good idea. Okay. So in all the movies and books you've seen or read, is there a character career path that you would just love to have yourself? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, hmm. I mean, could it be like a fantasy career path? Yes. That's even better. I would definitely gravitate towards that. Um, In my day-to-day job, I'm a psychologist, so I deal with a lot of heavy things. And if I could just choose a different career path, I think I would really want to go down a more of a fantasy route um, where I could do something that, you know, is just totally different than what I do in my day-to-day life and might um, be a little bit more lighthearted and a little bit funner. Um, So maybe. Potions master. You know, that's actually, that's kind of along the lines of what I was thinking. The first word that came to me was like a sea witch. And I was trying to think, you kind of read my mind. I was like, how do I, what would that be called? I mean, I guess a sea witch should do like conjurings, um, magic remedies. That would be potions along those lines. Absolutely. Yeah. That would be, that would be a dream job. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. What is your favorite city that you've visited? I think that one for me is actually a place that I've lived. So I actually went there to visit and then loved it so much that I decided to live there for a while. Um, So shout out to Tucson, Arizona. I fell in love with the desert. It's so magical and enchanting. The vibes, I love the food. I love the people, the um, entertainment, the art scene, just and go Wildcats, U of A. I I really love Tucson and I miss it. I don't live there anymore, but I, I miss it. Oh man. Well, someone who's still in the area, Tucson is amazing. I love just the culture and the colors and the murals. It's such a beautiful place. That's funny. I I thought you might be in Arizona, but I didn't know if it was Phoenix or Tucson or maybe another, you know, town or area that I'm not as familiar with. That's funny to know that you're in Tucson. Yeah. Yeah. I am on the outskirts. I I grew up in it and went to school in inner Tucson, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm currently still in the area. And um, I actually get the privilege of working in the government industry as well and have, you know, a high, I guess, a a bird's eye view of the region, which has been really, really nice. 
mm-hmm. but yeah, it is beautiful. It's still here. If you ever decide to come back. I know it's, it's, it calls me every now and then. And I have to say, okay, well, you move to the East coast now to be closer to family and yeah. his family's getting older and I, I want to spend time with them. So I'm at peace and not at the same time. My yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally understand. I totally understand. And there's like a great vibe in Tucson where people are super laid back. I can go to the grocery store wearing pajamas and people like don't care. It's just uh-huh. really nice. Absolutely. Yeah. I have, I have really fond memories from living there for sure. All right. Moving into the horror genre, I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Uh, what scared you the most as a child? Well, my mom watched a lot of Lifetime movies and <laughs> to this day, I really don't like them. Um, just because, well, I think some of them are, can be kind of cheesy. Some of them are good, but some of them are kind of cheesy, just not really my cup of tea. Um, but she really, really loved them. And she loved, you know, kind of the drama um, and the relationships, divorces and people stalking each other. <laughs> oh my God. My mom started. watched those too. I, yes, oh, and really? I am too, like, uh, traumatized by those. <laughs> I don't really enjoy watching them, um, but I, every now and then I'll still watch them with her to this day. But I think that, you know, the things that scared me the most were um, like hauntings or possessions, because um, I also like uh, demonic possession, because I grew up in a, in a Catholic family and my family was, you know, pretty religious and devout. And when I would see um you know well I didn't see it when I was a child but when I was in high school I watched The Exorcist and that was one of the most terrifying movies to me at the time um so anytime a person's body would be you know possessed or taken over by something infected by something that definitely scared me um as a kid even like some of the Goosebumps books that I'd read Mm -hmm. um you know where there would be a haunting or like the ghost would kind of take over or try to get inside or a demon would try to get inside a body that was always really scary to me. Yeah, that would be scary. Would you rather see a ghost of a stranger or of someone that you love? Oh, that's another good question. I'd say a stranger. I don't know. I think I'd find it even scarier if it was someone that I loved. I don't yeah. know how my brain works. Probably a stranger. Well, you probably feel more comfortable telling a stranger to get out, leave you alone than yeah, someone you love. Too. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever tried to contact a spirit with a with a Ouija board? No, that's no. nope. I don't have to think about that. No, I have. You're not. like I am I not going I'd, there. I'd be too afraid of making contact, and then my biggest fear of getting possessed would come true. <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, when I was a kid, I don't think I touched a Ouija board, but my friend brought over like the competitor's version of the board. I don't oh. even remember what it was, but it was like capitalism at its like truest form, where it wasn't like you know, it was like it was. I don't, I don't remember what it was called now, but it was a different <laughs> color. It was so funny. <laughs> I I didn't know that that existed, but <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's funny. Well, it doesn't exist now. I know the Ouija board is still around, and the version I played with is not. But I also think my friend, I'll always remember this. One of the questions she asked, and this dates me, is she's like, "Is Tupac still alive?" And then the thing said no, and she's like, "Oh my god, I can't believe Tupac's not alive." And I was um definitely not a popular, you know, pop, pop culture aware child. I grew up in a very shielded, you know, immigrant uh-huh. household. And I had no idea what she was talking about. And I'm sure let's, you know, that was huge news. And who would randomly ask that question unless they already knew, you know? Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
Okay. Well, thank you for doing the rapid fire warm up. You you ready to move on to the topic? Sure, absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about folk horror. And to answer your question from earlier, I have probably a casual observer of folk, folk horror, have seen it in movies and books, did not know much about it. I'm scared of horror in general. So this is a very brave thing for me to do today. But well, I appreciate your bravery. I really do. Yeah, absolutely. So when I look it up, the definition of folk horror is a subgenre of horror fiction that uses elements of folklore to invoke fear and foreboding. What do you think of that definition? And what interests you in the topic of folk horror? I, I think that, that that definition in general is pretty accurate. I think that, you know, the idea that folklore is a big part of folk horror uh, makes sense to me because a lot of what lies beneath or kind of at the heart of folk horror is some sort of myth or legend or uh, belief that a community has, that a group of people have. And, you know, they really base their life and their behaviors around that. And often it's in a pretty frightening way. Um, so I think that that definition is, is captures it pretty well. For me, I think a couple things, you know, interested me in folk horror. I think just the community that I grew up in uh, probably primed me to have an interest in it. I grew up in a, in a small Appalachian community, not that far from West Virginia, and probably one of the biggest, I think, legends or, um, you know, folkloric experiences that people would be familiar with is the Mothman um, from West Virginia, the legendary creature, the Mothman that looks like half man, half bird. I think a lot of horror fans would be familiar with that. And I grew up hearing stories about the Mothman, people uh, who, you know, around my grandparents' age who had said that they thought that they had witnessed it or had known someone who had witnessed it. And I'd also um, heard stories from my own family members and, and grandparents just about some of the lore in our own area that was closer to, to where I grew up. Elizabeth's grave was a really popular one. Um, this it, Supposedly a woman had um, been widowed and when her husband died, she got all of his land. And at the time when this was happening, uh, the small community, the men in the community did not want her to have that land and didn't think that she should have it. And so it's said that they hanged her. And so her grave was an area where um, supposedly, uh, you know, paranormal things were happening. And that was kind of a big legend or, or you know, superstition that we had in the area where I grew up. Um, I think some of the other things too, is just, I was really close to my grandma and she was very superstitious and her, her mother was also superstitious. So there was always things like, you know, if you um, if you break a mirror, you'll have seven years of bad luck. And if death comes and threes, you know, things like that, where she kind of lived her life that way, looking for kind of signs or omens. And I think that that probably also impacted me and the kind of genre that I gravitate towards or the things that interest me. Um, she was also a really earthy person, a, a great um, kitchen witch. She could work with herbs. Um, she'd use wild cherry bark, honey, pine needles, whiskey. She had a remedy for pretty much anything. And she absolutely loved nature. And she just had a really deep connection with nature. She'd often say, you know, I need to go to the woods. And, you know, she would just walk and pick mushrooms and she would get stuff to bring to the kitchen and make for us. And um, she loved reptiles, frogs, snakes, um, turtles. And she, you know, would collect not the living beings, but would collect um, you know, images and, and sculptures of those and just had them filled in her house. 
And so I think that all of these things, you know, really kind of set me on the path to be a folk horror lover. Um, and I think that, you know, with folk horror, it really kind of gives you a snapshot of like a particular community, what it is that scares them, um, what do their monsters look like, what drives them. And that's always been of interest to me, especially as a psychologist. I feel like that's just been kind of in my bones since I was born. I have had an interest in that. So I think that those are some of the reasons why maybe I gravitate towards folk horror as a genre. That's really cool that you had that experience in your upbringing, in your family, to have that much closeness to the earth and, and the creatures yeah. around you. Yes, I, I and I miss that even now. I feel like it was a lot stronger in my life when... Um, when I was living closer to my grandma and she really instilled that in me. And then now she's actually 90 years old now, but she, you know, has forgotten some of the things, you know, with her own kind of cognitive decline. Unfortunately, she's forgotten some of the things that, um, that she maybe could have taught me. I learned a lot from her while I could, but, but now our relationship is different. Um, but I'll, I'll always remember her as being um, just a person who, who's very connected to, to earth and nature and animals and just having that respect and that value for all, you know, for all living things. And, yeah. and that definitely has had an impact on me for sure. You mentioned the legend of the woman who was, um, who owned the land and the men burned her at the stake. And it's really interesting because it seems like a, a consistent theme in some folklore stories isn't necessarily the spirits in the woods. It's the people that you live yeah. with and what they do to each other. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're right on the money with that. I, I agree. It's often the scariest monsters, beasts, creatures in folk horror are people and yeah, like you said, the things that they do to each other, um, both inside their community and outside the community. So I think that, you know, folk horror really does rely pretty heavily on uh, those like interpersonal relationships or connections between people and, and how they, uh, the, 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 I guess the dark things that they're willing to do to each other if they believe in something or if they think that it's the right thing to do, mm -hmm. um, they'll, they'll do pretty awful things. And that's one of the scariest things I think about folk horror for sure. It's interesting because you can take some of those fundamental lessons taken in maybe like a smaller scale because it's usually in like an isolated community and reflecting it on a like larger societal application as far as like systemic oppression in this case it's like we don't want a woman to own land let's accuse her of witchcraft that's a tool that we can use for control um but it's it's a great way to, like an analogy for like a bigger idea uh, yeah i would i would absolutely agree with that i think that uh, i don't want to say all folk were but i think a lot of folk were if you you know you sit down and read it or you sit down and watch it and then you think about some of the deeper messages that it that it holds or some of the um, issues within a particular culture or society that they're trying to bring light to or trying to reflect it's it's absolutely there you know and if you look for it you can see how some of the things that people are afraid of or the things that people misunderstand about each other or that they perfectly understand but like you said they're trying to use to their advantage or to manipulate and control to try to keep things a certain way or to get what they want, um, how those, those types of um, identities or things that make us each, you know, an individual and unique person that they can be used against us um, in folk horror. And I think that folk horror can be a really good discourse for a lot of the, you know, societal issues and, you know, oppressions and, and wounds that, that are out there and that we've caused.
an extension of that oppression too. I, I think often like there's like paganism that's associated with it or these kind of like older traditions that seem to have been swept away in lieu of the more prominent, I guess, religious ways of thinking. It's almost like, uh, it, it's interesting how, like, I forgot where I was trying to go with that, but like the idea of not only is it exp exploring like systems of oppression, but the method in itself, like the, what it's rooted in is also a belief system that seems to be like from the general belief system is kind of like uh, hidden away. Does that make sense? I don't know if I made sense uh -huh. there. Yeah, no, I, I think I follow what you were saying. And, and as you were saying it, one of the things I was thinking of was, um, you know, like in, in psychology, as a psychologist, one of the things that, you know, I remember learning was how, you know, if somebody was, um, you know, if they had a mental illness, or if they had, say, schizophrenia, you know, however many years ago, 20, 30, 40 years ago, people had a very different idea about what was going on with that person. So I think that sometimes, you know, not all the time, but sometimes in folk were, it can be, you know, based on people's um, fears of the unknown or misunderstandings in other people. So they might interpret, you know, someone who has, you know, um, hallucinations or, or hears things that, that they can't hear. They might interpret that as the person's possessed or they're evil or something's wrong with them rather than, you know, understanding that it's just that their brain, you know, works differently. Or, you know, if, if you're in a community where you rely on, you know, weather and, and livestock for your, your sustenance, you know, and, and if things go wrong with that, then you might look for someone to blame or to think that, you know, a witch caused it or something like that. So I think a lot of the um, fear too of folk, folk is just fear of other people. What are they going to think of me? What are they going to do to me? How are they going to interpret it? And it's just lots of times based, I think on, you know, like some misunderstandings too, or misattributions to things that are happening, yeah. which is really scary. Cause I don't think that we have a lot of control over that where, you know, if it's a bad year for livestock or the weather's really bad, it's what can we do to change that, to prove, you know, okay, I'm not a witch <laughs> or right. what, you know, I can't really control the weather. I can't really do this. So it's just, as you were saying that it made me think about that. Um, yeah. And I'm not sure exactly where to go with that either, but there, that was just what popped into my head <laughs> well that and then that got me thinking about the I, I guess I can call it the cult of Dionysus but the belief system that if you didn't have a good like a harvest um there would be almost like mass hysteria and uh -huh. you they would sacrifice people because they believe the blood of the sacrifice would go into yeah. the earth and Dionysus would be pleased and they'd have a better harvest but it is so sad when you think about the outcome of such hysteria results in the deaths of, of somebody yes I know it, it really is sad I mean it's tragic it's you know, absolutely. You mentioned the Appalachian region, and I was really actually excited when you brought it up because that's one of the things I've been seeing a lot on TikTok is a lot of the uh, folk belief systems when living in the area, especially like if you're home and your window's open and you think you see something out there, no, you didn't. Or if you're in the woods and you hear something, no, you didn't. Do you, did you have any of exposure to that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I did. And I think that it's, it's hard to talk about in a way um, because to me, it seemed like really normal. And I think that once, you know, when I graduated from high school and I went to college and, and grad school and I met other people and, you know, had exposure um, to so many people from different walks of life and different cultures. And I mean, I learned so much from it. it I realized that some of the things maybe that I grew up with or the way that my community and family functioned, you know, was different. And um, to other people, it did kind of seem 
like, oh, you're really superstitious or that's just kind of hocus pocus or that's just, you know, it's kind of even silly that you would believe that or that you would think that. And once I started to learn more, you know, about about different places, different culture, different communities, I started to realize, okay, you know, maybe that would be, you know, kind of strange for other people to understand. Um, but I've, I've, I've actually read a couple books. Um, I think one is called the, the candles and the crossroads, something along those lines. And it, it documents a lot of information and like, um, oral tradition and oral accounts from a lot of the elderly folks in the community of their experiences of different um, superstitions and different um, beliefs that they grew up with and were instilled in them by their family members. And a lot of it, um, at least from what I was reading and from what I've researched, a lot of it had some connections to um, both Scottish and Irish um, traditions and beliefs from you know when those folks immigrated to the United States. and. That was also really interesting to me that some of the things that uh, the things that we still believe in the way that we still uh, approach things in Appalachia has some roots in you know other countries in Ireland and Scotland was what I was you know reading most about and I found that most interesting because I have um, ancestors and I have roots in both Ireland and Scotland so that's why I think I gravitated towards that was trying to learn more about my own ancestry but yeah absolutely I mean there's there's there are so many superstitions and so many um, little turn of phrases and, and beliefs like that. That's just almost kind of like magical thinking, but you don't really realize that's what it is until you kind of get out of it and see the way that different, you know, how other people do things. And then you mm -hmm. realize, oh, okay, maybe that is, you know, could be called magical thinking, but I never really saw it like that. I just kind of thought that was normal. That's kind of the way that I experience the world because of the people in the community around me, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I grew up in a, a multicultural household and yeah, that, that, I don't know how to explain the term, but it's when you are removed from your normal to realize, oh, that maybe isn't so normal to these other yeah. people. <laughs> and you become way more sensitive to like cultural differences. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, um, as you just said, that it kind of popped into my head that I think that that could be one of the scarier parts of folklore is that if people never have that moment where they are kind of removed or taken out of their community to see other people and how they do things and different viewpoints, you know, you can see how a community, if they just stay in isolation and maybe the beliefs that they have are hurtful to other people, you could see how they just keep, you know, perpetuating that because they don't really, they never leave or nothing ever, um, changes because they don't have any different experiences that's just kind of their world and it seems normal yeah absolutely and we I mean extend that even to like the, the sci-fi idea what if we find a colony on a different planet that exposes the fact that what we do on earth is really barbaric or weird or you know what I mean like uh-huh because some people sit in comfort and they think yeah I feel really comfortable with my normal it feels pretty normal <laughs> and then, to be able to have the exposure of oh maybe it's not normal exactly. at all Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, th I think that that can be really powerful and really important. I've seen that a lot too, even with clients who I've, you know, counseled, um, they'll start to realize through their own reflection and their own processing. Oh, okay. This way that I grew up, maybe it wasn't normal. Or, you know, I see it a lot with, uh, you know, unfortunately with people who have grown up in abusive homes or maybe where they had emotional or physical or sexual abuse. And they really do feel like maybe that's just kind of what families do to each other. Um, and they just kind of grow up feeling 
like they can't say anything about it. And there's a whole lot of reasons why, but, you know, just kind of stick into that idea of um, normal. A lot of them are, you know, grown adults and they have to kind of go through that process of realizing, okay, that wasn't normal. Um, that's not what families are supposed to do. And they have to try to, you know, heal from that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about examples of folk horror and within those examples, what are the foundational themes? So are there like movies, books that you highly recommend? Absolutely. Yeah. So I uh, came up with um, the way I did it was to think maybe a little bit about some of my favorite movies and then use a movie to kind of illustrate the plot device or the specific element so that that way I'm kind of weaving the examples in with the with the elements of folk horror. Perfect. Um, so yeah, if, if you have any questions, feel free to stop me and ask, but I think I've got maybe four or five elements here and I was just going to name a movie okay. to help it, help bring it to life there. Sounds good. <laughs> so I think the, the setting, the backdrop to folk horror is really, really important. It's, it's, it's usually isolated, um, secluded in some way. And that, that doesn't even have to be like the landscape, you know, cause I was thinking about that, like, um, Suspiria, I think is a, is one of my favorite folk horror movies. Actually, I like the original and I love the remake. Um, it, it just, it was amazing. It was one of my favorite folk horrors. And so with the setting, you know, lots of times you think of a backdrop that's pretty isolated, gloomy, um, you know, rainy, cut off from the rest of the world. And that's definitely, uh, you know, a, a great way to go with folk horror. And it's, it's definitely a traditional way to go with folk horror, but you could even do it, you know, with being cut off in, in a different way, like this ballet that's, you know, operating. Yeah. I mean, you can walk outside the building and there are restaurants and there are, you know, other people and there's a community outside of this, you know, building. So it's not really isolated in the way that like a Scottish Isle would be, but inside what the people believe and the kind of the mind control that they exhibit and, you know, try to exert over other people, it's like a world of its own. So I think that, you know, even if it's not some, uh, you know, isolated place, there has to be some type of isolation in the community, even if it is more of like in a psychological way. That makes me um, think of like cult think, like where they yeah. purposely condition you to be isolated from outside resources. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, th I think so for sure. Okay. And I think that, you know, having a connection to nature is also another important aspect of folk horror. Um, and, and whether that's, you know, the, the landscape or whether that's some sort of a, a god or a power that a community believes in, um, just in some way having that something is bigger than us idea or there's something, you know, ancient or a power that exists that, that we as humans are trying to, you know, commune with or that we're trying to satisfy. And I think that that, that definitely is another um you know, key part of folk horror or key element of folk horror. The, the community versus like the outsider, I think is another really common element or, or maybe you could call it a trope that you see a lot in, in folk horror is that there's this group that's established and they have these beliefs and nobody's going to change their mind. And then sometimes knowingly or unknowingly, a person or a, a few people will come into that community and, you know, really grapple with what are these people doing or mm -hmm. how can they think this? 
And I think that um, Midsummer, the movie is a really great example of that where the couple thinks that they're going to this really, you know, idyllic, magical place that's going to resolve their relationship problems. And it's going to be this beautiful, you know, summer solstice festival. But then when they get there, they realize that there's a lot going on that's pretty, pretty violent and, and frightening. And they're kind of trapped there and they can't really change the minds of the people that are there. And so then they're trying to get out. And just this whole idea of, you know, the in-group and the out-group or the community versus the outsider, I think, is another pretty common theme that you'd see in folk horror. Yeah, that one I I've, I haven't seen because I was scared, <laughs> but I have read plenty about it. And I love the actress Florence Pugh, I believe is how you say her I do, name. too. She did a great job. Yes. Um, I mean, I've seen clips, too, where they're like the United screaming and the fact that I think what, what the biggest takeaway they had, and I'm not sure if I'm speaking correctly here but the idea that at the end and this is a spoiler uh, at the end she kind of becomes part of this cult and there's a ritual at the end that ends up killing her boyfriend ex-boyfriend whatever um but the scariest part is that there are people that feel like this is a vindicating event um and if so that means that you have also been inundated into this cult-like behavior like you've also been conditioned to join because if you really step back and think about it did he deserve to have been burned the way that he did was his crime was right. that thing of the crime you know yes I, I i hear exactly what you're saying and i think that in a way that is the the beauty and the horror of folk horror is that you know sometimes the, the people involved do actually become part of the the community or the cult or the event and then other times you know they 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 find a way to escape from it or they're a part of it, but not willingly, you know, they're just sacrificed and it's a horrible ending for them and, and they're not getting anything empowering out of it. Um, so yeah. I, I think that, you know, it's, it's always interesting for me to see how a movie or a book is going to end in folk horror, just because there are different directions that it can go in. And I, one of my favorite movies, um, just to piggyback off of what you were saying, um, it is which, and <laughs> Folk horror, the movies I feel like are always really um, good at coming up with just like one word for the title, like witch, mm-hmm. lamb, spell. And I love that because it just kind of gives you that simple um, feeling, but it packs in so much into the idea of witch or spell or lamb. But I digress a little bit. So if I go back to the um, to witch, that, that, there's a moment at the end, which this is a spoiler um, alert to, where the you know the girl she actually um you know owns the the witchery and she owns the you know you see her feet rising up off the ground she's levitating over this beautiful campfire and she's smiling when she had previously cried herself to sleep because she didn't want her community to think that she was a witch she wasn't the reason why the livestock was you know dying she wasn't the reason why the weather was not cooperating but because they all started to, you know, put her into that role, I think at the end for her, I was actually happy for her when I watched it, when she kind of owned it, because she's like, okay, if you're going to accuse me of being a witch, instead of being sad and trying to please you, I'm going to be a freaking witch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, Embrace the power. And, yeah. And I, I thought, all right, that's cool. I haven't, I, I haven't seen a lot of books or movies that do that. And so that was cool to see that, you know, that there was something that she could take out of it that was a positive or turn it into a positive um, rather than being so quick to try to, you know, please other people or, you know, beg for her life or, you know, 
I didn't do this, you know, instead she's like, okay, if that's who you want me to be, then that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that was inter- really interesting. Earlier you talked about nature, um, connection to nature. Do you, what do you think is the purpose behind that? Do you think that the, uh, the commentary is that we have gotten too far removed from nature are like, we've denied earth's, you know, power. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, I think that there, that that is definitely a, um, for, for a lot of people who, you know, write, create, direct horror or, or folk horror. I think that is a big part of it. That's a big theme of, um, and where the inspiration come from is this idea that we have gotten too far away from uh, our roots and from where we started and that we are disconnected from the earth. And I mean, I can't speak for other, um, you know, time eras in the past, but I know now that, you know, just the job that I have and, you know, being in, you know, concrete walls and, you know, some places you don't even have a window to look out of and you're sitting in front of a cubicle or a computer all day and um, what come home and watch TV, you know, and it's just like, I think sometimes, wow, it would be really nice to actually be able to get out and farm the land, you know, have a harvest, kind of take it back to the basics, have a little bit more connection with the, you know, the cycles of, of seasons and earth and nature. And um, I find myself even stumbling sometimes to talk about it. And that's sad because that I think is kind of evidence or proof that, you know, I'm not nearly as connected to those um, things and those values as even like my grandma was or say, you know, her, you know, ancestors and the generation before her, you know, I, I think that the nature is a big piece of it because it, it does suggest that there is kind of a disconnect and that we have gotten, you know, further away from where we started. And I think that it also, um, nature is really important too, because it kind of shows us that there's something bigger than us or something outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. That is a power that we can't control or that we can't own. And yet, I think time and time again, humans want to have that power or that control or want to be able to, you know, interpret things or predict things. And I think nature just has a way of reminding us that, you know, it's a, it's a power of its own. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay. Sorry. I feel like I don't know if I took you off your, your, if you have more to list or not, but go ahead and continue. Yeah. yeah, I think I just had um, one more. And that was, I, I kind of call it mood. Okay. Um, I, I think that folk horror has, and this one's hard to like put into words or to define, but it's it has a mood. And oftentimes when you're finished watching it, at least for me, it puts me in a mood. So um, like if I were to watch an old favorite from high school, like I love Scream and that was really popular when I was in high school. If I were to watch kind of like a slasher like that, I would get some like, cheap thrills and scares and like it it's adrenaline um pumping and I enjoyed it but it wouldn't for me wouldn't leave a mood or it wouldn't make me feel something that kind of lingers on into the next day whereas when I watch some really good folk horror movies or even you know read some really good folk horror books I'll feel that mood um and I think that that's that's really one of my favorite parts about folk horror is that, you know, it, it makes your skin crawl. There's just this undertow of tension the whole time and you can feel it building and you don't know where it's going. Um, and it's not like somebody pops out of the closet and, you know, has a knife or something. It's more like what we had talked about earlier where you, you can see how things are unfolding between people and you can see their um, relationships and their, their motivations and you can see how their fears are, you know, 
starting to unfold and you know that it's going somewhere that's probably not going to have a happy ending. Um, and I think that that to me is one of the things about folk horror that I like the most is just that feel, that mood, that mm -hmm. feeling that it gives. And I think that um, The Hills Have Eyes, it would be a great example. That's actually one of my like top three favorite horror movies is The Hills Have Eyes. You know, they're driving through the desert. This family's driving through the desert and you know they don't know anybody and there aren't any houses around. They stopped, you know, at a gas station and there's one attendant working there pumping gas, you know, the, the old school way as we would think of it now. Mm -hmm. And he gives them, you know, directions. Um, hey, you can find a shortcut if you go this way and it'll take you to California a lot quicker. So they follow his instruction. And then what they find is that it, their car, you know, breaks down. It gets them further away from any, you know, sign of life except for these cannibals who are in the desert kind of waiting to stalk them. And mm -hmm. so I think that that's, that's a mood when you see that desert and there's nobody around except for a few people who have these, you know, ill intentions to do this family harm. The family's car doesn't work. There's nowhere for them to go. They don't get cell phone service, you know, and back when it first came out, there was no such thing as a cell phone anyway. Yeah. But I think that, that, you know, that's a really good example of that mood where you just kind of feel it. Um, and again, I know that one I struggle a little bit to define, but that's for me, the best way I can is that it just kind of gives you that, that unnerving mood and you know that it's going somewhere. You just don't know where yet. Yeah, absolutely. So I had two questions, but I'm wondering if I can merge them because they kind of, they, they kind of relate to each other. I wanted to talk about the origin, like the source of where these stories are pulling from, like how much of it is based off of truth. And then from a writer's perspective, the balance between, you know, honoring that, that resource, that source, that truth, and what the freedom they have from their artistic license they have from there to evolve those stories and belief systems. What are, what's your thought on that? Yeah, the, another um, two really great questions. The, I think the origins to folk horror, simply put from a textbook answer would be, you know, especially with film, I think that folk horror, you know, the golden age of folk horror would have been, um, you know, would have originated from the 1970s. That was when, uh, you know, a lot of the, really well-known folk horror movies came out blood on satan's claw um you know the wicker man those types of movies i think that really kind of made folk horror a thing where people actually saw it as something and defined it and could identify it um would probably be you know back in the 1970s but you know i think the other origins has just been from since the beginning of time i think more of a psychology or a psychologist answer would be that you know folk horror has been around since there were people since the beginning of time and um you know there really is i think before the movies became really popular there really is an oral tradition of folk horror um where you know families would pass down stories to each other or would even you know when new people would pass through they would warn them or tell them certain things you know watch out for this or look out for that um and you know, I think that that oral tradition is really beautiful and, and really important too as a part of folk horror and the origin to folk horror is just how people would communicate important things to each other. Um, and I think too that when, um, when you look at like the modern technology that we have now and how we can really look at what folk horror is and where it came from and how it really does resonate with something primal inside, you know, most of us, if not all of us, 
I think that modern technology in a way could be a good thing because it allows us as a community to kind of look at things differently and have larger um, and more meaningful conversations that maybe we couldn't do if folk were wasn't a thing and hasn't been brought to light with a lot of this more modern technology. But I also think that, you know, the, the more modern technology too can be a, a danger, which has been, you know, pointed out in a couple of the more recent folk horror films. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I think that the, the origin of it, um, I think has been around, you know, for a long time. And it's just, for me, would be part of the human experience or part of the human psyche. Now, I know other people might disagree with that or they might have a different viewpoint, but as a psychologist, that's kind of where I'm coming from. So I think maybe that's why I look at it that way or see yeah. it that way. Well, I, now that I'm thinking about it, it feels very meta because as yeah. the writer creating a folk tale, you're kind of part of that process or you could perpetuate that uh-huh. process. Um, a good example, I brought this up in another episode, but I love it so much. I'll bring it up here. It's um, a Netflix um, Black Mirror movie called Bandersnatch. And it's, uh, maybe it's not a movie, it's a series. I don't remember. But anyway, it's a build your own adventure structure where you can actually advance to, you know, make decisions and the movie will progress based off of the decisions you made. Oh, wow. Okay. It plays off of the eighties, you know, build your own adventure books. Uh And the story is about a man who is trying to do that for a video game. And so he's got, you know, paper everywhere and he keeps, you know, here's your decisions and each decision leads to a new path. And he draws the lines that, you know, like when you draw the hierarchy lines, he draws those lines down and each path narrows it down, narrows it down, narrows it down. You get to the ending. But what he didn't realize that was by drawing that symbol of the path converging, he was actually evoking a demon. And as the story progresses, because he keeps, it's like, it's almost like drawing, I don't know, the Satan star or whatever, um, all around your house. And you don't know that's what you're drawing. So you're innocent, but then the devil shows up. Uh (laughs) And so from our experience advancing through Bandersnatch, you're slowly, he's losing his mind. You're losing your mind. And at the very end, you realize that the, the evil acts that are happening are, are linked to him drawing the thing. So then, um, I guess at one point there's even like, all right, if someone else were to pick up the same, you know, job, let's say he loses his job, someone else does it. I can't really remember. They start drawing the same exact symbols. They're caught in the same loop. And it was just kind of chilling to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it seems to fit into the, to the folklore idea in that sometimes, and again, not all the time, but sometimes you'll notice people like in folklore movies, um, sometimes people who are maybe like, part of the community, but they're starting to like question it or doubt it, but there's more, you know, powerful, you know, people above them that maybe they're afraid of, or they don't want to go against, but kind of this idea of like, you can, you can do certain actions or take certain actions and think that it's going one way, but then you later find out that maybe it was going down a different road or a different path. Um, and, and, you know, you, you didn't really expect that to happen um, or that you couldn't have, you didn't set out to do that, but then something, you know, completely unexpected happens along the way. (laughs) Yes. Is there a responsibility for the writer, especially if they're pulling from folklore or belief systems that may be, that may belong to a specific region or cultural setting to like uh, honor that or like what creative license do they have? What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's another great question. And I actually, I, I thought about that a lot because what you just said really resonates with me that, you know, the, the, they're not just thoughts or beliefs or legends or myths that were created, 
you know, in a vacuum, but that they belong to, you know, a certain group of people or a certain community of people and trying to have respect for that um, and, and to not, you know, misrepresent it. I think that that, you know, for me is important. I think, you know, other authors would probably, well, they would have other answers about that. But for me, I do feel like that's important. Uh, but I also feel like the creative license is important for, you know, me as an author and for my writing process. Um, so the way that I, the way that I worked it with Sing Our Bones Eternal is that, you know, I really did draw a lot from um, Scottish mythology, um, Scottish folklore, and then of course some of the surrounding areas um, like Norse mythology, uh, Irish mythology, and folklore. But there's a there's a pretty big emphasis on the Scottish folklore, and I did a lot of research to see what the beliefs were, um, and went to you know reputable um, you know websites, books, um, interviews, documentaries, things like that to see what uh, what the uh, what it meant to people there, what the accounts of it were. So I think that you know as an author, if if you're trying to portray something in a really accurate or historical way. I think that sticking to the history and sticking to the facts of, of the folklore is really important. But if you're creating like a fiction novel, such as what I was doing, more of like a, um, you know, had some fantasy elements or, you know, some elements that weren't entirely based um, on fact or history, that, that's where the creative license comes in. And for me, that is an important part of it. I think that, you know, as long as, as for me, as long as I would say, here's where you know, you could get, I guess, more historical information about these, you know, myths, legends, folklore, and make it known that this is where it comes from. And then I've used some creative license with it. I feel comfortable with that. I feel okay with that. Um, as long as I, you know, make that known, even if it's just a, you know, a brief acknowledgement at the, at the end or the beginning of, of the book that, you know, gives a shout out to where, where it originated from and where people could maybe get more historical information about it if they want to. But for me, part of the fun was being able to look at some of the different, um, you know, mythological creatures or the, or the legends that they had in Scotland and put, you know, my own creative twist on it in this folk horror novel. Um, one of the biggest ones was the Blue Men of the Minch. Uh, that was uh, a legend of storm kelpies and um, the Outer Hebrides, you know, off of the mainland of Scotland and I just really was fascinated by that and you know looked at it and looked up on it and read it and a lot of information about it and I decided to um, incorporate some of that mythology into Sing Our Bones Eternal but I put a few of my own um, kind of twists or nuances on it but I definitely think you know if a person's wanting to do something very historical um, you know it's it would be important to I think stick to the facts but I decided to you know, put some of my own creative license on it to make it more of my own and um, to also work through some of the uh, emotions and, and experiences just as that a person might go through, you know, different characters can represent different things. So, you know, the, the um, blue men of the Minch kind of represent the villain and trying to explore that, you know, what, what does it mean to be the villain? Do they, um, have any personal growth or do they just kind of stay a villain throughout the book and just using some of the folkloric aspects to explore different types of characters and, and you know human growth and development I think is one of the coolest parts about having creative license because it does allow you to experiment and explore um, when you, when you can do it that way.
Yeah, I, I agree with the creative license too, especially in the fictional works, because I feel it's always funny. It's always a generational thing. We are of our generation is challenging the older generation as we continue to tweak and change and, you know, uh, challenge cultural expectations. Um, it, it's always my mom uh, came over from Vietnam in the 70s. And in many ways, I feel like her understanding of her culture kind of froze in time from that uh -huh. era because she's never cool. gone back so she mm -hmm. has she doesn't see vietnam in the 90s the 2000s now um and her belief system can be considered maybe very um traditional and maybe even old-fashioned if she hasn't been immersed in the culture and in its evolution and so i know i challenge her <laughs> every time i kind of play with an idea or tweak something you know um but i feel like that's what generations do to the older generation and um I know that in the Amer Asian American writing community, the ability to take cultural, like, iconic stories and repurpose them or change them or update them in a way that reflects the current, you know, outlook POV um, is something that we would really like the freedom to do and not feel like, you know, we have to completely keep it the way it was and not change it. Just like how we look at our um, very prevalent westernized uh, fairy tales where, you know, in the past, Cinderella was portrayed one way. But as each iteration occurs, Cinderella becomes more independent. Cinderella, you know, isn't, um, you know, working. Maybe she's not like just a scullery maid. Maybe she's in school, you know, <laughs> like, she, like all these things to kind of see ourselves in it. And then in some cases, our Disney princesses are envisioned as villains, you know, um, which make it kind of fun. So I, I enjoy that aspect of, of creative license. Yeah, no, and I think that, the, that those are some great points that, you know, as, as generations, you know, progress and different, you know, opportunities become available and, you know, we can look at things differently and have conversations with, you know, people from, from different generations about things maybe, in the past or, you know, some of the, um, you know, kind of old fashioned legends or beliefs that maybe they grew up with. I think it can create meaningful conversations of where did it come from? What, what does it mean? What are the bigger implications of it? And can things be different now? Or can we, can we use it as a way to, you know, empower ourselves or to make positive changes, to make healthy changes, um, to kind of envision a different uh, future, you know, and envision a different present moment. And I, I think that that, that that makes, uh, fiction in general, I think a really, um, like a really helpful tool in being able to help people, you know, creatively and imaginatively work some of those things out. And sometimes in a, in a way that doesn't feel like as threatening, you know, because you're doing it in a way that, you know, is fiction. So you're allowed to have that creativity to explore. And, and I think that it makes people sometimes feel more comfortable to even to engage in, you know, challenging discussions. And that's not to say that we shouldn't engage in challenging discussions, regardless of whether or not we feel comfortable with it, because I, I believe that we should. But I do think that sometimes having it um, in a kind of like using metaphors or using fiction as a way to explore some of those things does kind of open the door to, to really important discussions in a way that feels maybe a little bit less threatening to some people where they can still learn and grow. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for writers who want to dip their toes into the folk horror genre? I think that uh, reading it and, and watching it, like immersing yourself in it and seeing the craft, seeing how other people do it and, and, you know, really learning from that of, you know, what you like or you don't like or what you think worked or didn't work for you, I, I think definitely is, is, is one thing that I could suggest. Um, and that's really 
helped me a lot. And it's also made me have more clarity about where I want to go with my book or the things that I do or don't want to do with it. So that's been really helpful. I think um, another thing too, is that with folk horror in particular as a genre, advice that I would have is um, don't be afraid to go there. So in folk horror, the people want, that's what folk horror is. They want you to kind of go there. You know, they don't necessarily want like the happy ending or where everything's wrapped together, like in a pretty box with a bow or, you know, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the movie. It is a really old movie, like, well, not really old, more like probably like 1950s or 60s. And it was pretty frightening to people because it was the idea that a, that a mother would, you know, deliberately uh, kill or sacrifice her child. And even though that has been happening for a long time, at the time when it was released and that it came out, it wasn't something that people would really talk about or would really entertain or would think about. And so the idea that a mother could, you know, kill or, or would willingly kill or hurt their child was just like seen as, you know, really negative and taboo. But I think that in folklore, that's part of it is that, you know, when we read it or watch it, you know, we're wanting to see people go to those places, those dark places. And then what, what comes of it? Is there any growth or does it just kind of end on a, on a negative note or, you know, does someone become empowered by it, but really just go there. So when you're doing the writing, if it seems like, oh, this is intense, or I don't know how this is going to be received. If it's folklore, you probably do want to go to that place. Um, and of course have your, you know, your trigger warnings and everything. So that, that way people yeah. are familiar with it um, and know what to expect. But I think, you know, just having the courage to go there and to explore um, some of those darker places is definitely, uh, you know, another piece of advice I'd have, because I think that's probably what the audience of folklore would want. Well, that's great advice. Um, I think that's confirmed to me, at least that <laughs> I am terrified. <laughs> but for those that um, are interested in love it, um, definitely keep an eye out for Casey's book when she comes out. So yeah, Casey, any last uh, words and promos? Um, it comes out on the 29th. Um, of March. And I've also, um, you know, I'm on Instagram at Fins and Fables and I welcome people who maybe want to make a connection or, you know, if we have similar interests, I'm always happy to, to make those connections. Um, so welcome people to stop by and, you know, visit me there. I've also got a website. Um, it's just CaseyRayburn.com. You can see some short stories that I've written. You can watch a trailer for Sing Our Bones Eternal. Just a couple of goodies there to help you get to know me a little bit better. Um, so those are all the promo things that I have, but I just really, really want to thank you, Vicki, for having me on the show. Um, I've been excited and been watching some of the speculative sandbox shows for a couple months now and um, just really glad we connected and appreciate your time. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.